I'd like to read this verse from Isaiah chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. There is no God besides me. Father, we come to the God of our hearts and the God of the universe. It's virtually impossible for us as finite beings to conceive of how a transcendent God can become an eminent God. The God of the universe who knows the galaxies at the far edges of space and yet at the same time can speak to us individually among six billion human beings on this planet. But so we believe this to be true, Father, from your word. And this morning we pray in Jesus' name that you will speak to our hearts, that you will touch us through your word, you will inspire us to be men and women of faith and prayer, you will enable us to serve you in the strength of the Lord, and to know, Lord, that no matter how difficult or how evil the world seems to be becoming, that God prevails, and your will will be done ultimately on earth even as it is in heaven. And so, Father, we stand here this morning before you, acknowledging that we need you every hour, every moment, and that without you we are nothing and we have nothing. And so we pray that your Spirit will be the one who will fill us with understanding of what you're saying to each of us today in Christ's name. Amen. If you will open to the eighth chapter of the book of Judges, Judges chapter 8. I'd like to begin reading with verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoils. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they said, We will surely give them. So they spread out a garment, and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the neckbands which were on their camels. And Gideon made it into an ephod and placed it in his city Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there, so that it became a snare to Gideon and to his household. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads any more. And the land was undisturbed for forty years in the days of Gideon. Well, as we noted last week, you see as you read this passage that they gave Gideon credit for the victory. You have given us this victory over the Midianites. They don't seem, at least as far as the scripture records, to give God the credit and to know that Gideon was simply his instrument. So what they want to do, as you read into that, they say, you rule over us and your son and your son's son. That's a claim or a cry for a dynasty. They're asking for a king in effect here. Or at least a governor who will eventually become a king or at least his family will become the ruling dynasty over the land of Israel. Wisely, fortunately, Gideon refuses to be the governor over his people Israel. He sees this as not his calling. He doesn't see this as God's plan for him. 
I think by now he has come to, to grips with the idea that he is the, the Shofat, the Redeemer, the, the, uh, the Deliverer at this moment in time. But he doesn't see that as putting him in the place of political authority over his people. Last week we looked at uh, the verse in Samuel, 1 Samuel, the passage in 1 Samuel where Israel finally does call for a king and God says to Samuel, give them a king. And he tells them a reason. He said, because they have forsaken me. It's not you they're rejecting, Samuel. They're rejecting me. And so you see the, the uh, vestiges of this, or actually the, you know, the, the lead up to this already several hundred years before the time of Samuel. Gideon wisely refused to become governor over his people, but he rather unwisely, at the same time, asks for a kind of a tax or a tribute from his people from the spoils of victory. They had collected tens of thousands of, we'll call them earrings, which is what this translation calls them here, from the bodies of the dead Midianites. Now remember, there were 135,000 of these guys. And 120,000 of them had been slain on the route all the way over to uh, Gilead. And then the other 15,000, the implication is at least that they were probably also wiped out over there. So that's a lot of bodies from which to take earrings or whatever these rings were. What the scripture tells us here, it gives us a little parenthetical statement there. It says that uh, they were, because they were Ishmaelites, and we said, oh, I thought they were Midianites. How can they be Ishmaelites? But again, as, as I've highlighted before, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites just became totally intertwined, intermarried. They became, as they were, one single race. And the word Ishmaelite, Midianite are, are used interchangeably for this nation of people. And of course, they both have the same origin because um, Ishmael was, of course, of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so was Midian. And so uh, the blending of the two is, is the blending of like blood anyway, and actually related to, uh, to Jacob, to, to Israel. But they had these earrings. Now, the word that is used here in the Hebrew is nezem, and nezem is translated earring here, but it can also mean nose ring, you know, a nose ring, which was very common in those days. Oh, and a, never yeah, I know. <laughs> the wearing of nose rings was not uncommon. It was, in fact, very common amongst the, uh, the desert Bedouins, and it was even common amongst Israel. This is, a, this is a, to me, a fascinating passage. Let me read it to you from Isaiah chapter 3. I don't know if you've noticed this verse before in your, or this passage in your reading, but it's kind of an interesting passage. Isaiah chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. Of course, it's a sad passage, but it's, it's, it has a kind of an interesting list for us. Isaiah 3:16. Moreover, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are proud, and walk with their heads held high, and seductive eyes, and go along with mincing steps, the tinkle of the bangles on their feet, therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, meaning basically uh, necklace-type things, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. It's a wonder they could get off the ground. <laughs> That's quite a list of decoration. 
And of course, most of it would have been gold, maybe silver. And, and, you know, and the whole idea here is that these are people that are, the total focus is upon them. Look at me. I am wonderful. Me, myself, and I. And God has totally been forgotten in the midst of it all. As we see so often in Scripture, God resists the proud, but God draws the humble near to Him. And that's one of the hardest things for us to deal with. I mean, there's all kinds of things in Scripture, but one of the hardest things for us to deal with is this whole question of pride, because every one of us is afflicted with it. You know? For some people, it's more obvious than others. It's like I was, I was just beginning to read Simbala's uh, new book, and in, in the beginning, he tells about a pastor who, who began preaching there in the New York area, and the anointing of the Lord was on him, and, and the church began to grow and became a, a great uh, lighthouse for the Word. But a few years later, he noticed when he went back, it just seemed like the edge was off of it. And, and he discovered that the focus, the limelight, was on the preacher. He was the one. And he even got to speak to him a little bit afterwards and said, don't, remember, don't forget, friend that you need to fade into the background and put all the focus on the Lord. And he said he didn't like that <laughs> word of admonition. And, you know, it, it can happen to anyone, this whole issue of pride. And that is one of the factors that obviously is uh, the high point here in Isaiah 3. And it's an issue with Gideon, as we see, as we move along here uh, in this passage. The men gave him these earrings or nose rings, whatever they were, threw them into this garment, this blanket that was spread on the ground. And the scripture tells us that he collected 1,700 shekels worth of gold. That's, that comes out to about 40 pounds, which would translate today to about mm, maybe $140,000, $50,000 worth of gold. And, and he also got some other spoil out of the whole thing there. It lists in, ver in verse 26 that he got the crescent ornaments, the, the kind of like the things that hang around the neck and, and down onto the chest pendants and purple robes that were on the kings, as well as the decoration that hung around the necks of the camels that belonged to the king, kings of Midian. So he got all this stuff. Verse 27 is a kind of a difficult verse to really fully understand. The reason is because it talks about him making an ephod out of gold. Now the ephod was the sleeveless tunic that was worn by the priests as the outer garment. And it was the symbol of the priesthood. For the high priest, the ephod was the piece of garment upon which the breastplate was affixed, which had all the, you know, the jewels that are mentioned there in Scripture that were on the breastplate. And so it seems like what Gideon has done is made a golden replica of this garment. Now, does that mean he made a freestanding garment, you know, three-dimensional, or did he just make something out of gold that was shaped in the outline of the tunic? Well, it's, it's really difficult to know here. Uh, why would he do this? Why would he take gold and shape it into the shape of the ephod worn by the priests? It's possible that he made it as a tribute to God, as a tribute to Yahweh, who had given to Israel victory. But I think there probably was another reason. And I think it may have been to serve as a reminder of the spiritual superiority of Gideon. Because you see, Gideon had stood face to face with the angel of the Lord. Nobody else in Israel had at that time. He had spoken to the angel of the Lord. He had heard from the angel of the Lord. He had brought a sacrifice and the angel of the Lord had touched it and it had been consumed by fire. 
So Gideon had this, I think, this developing sense that he was somehow spiritually superior to the rest of Israel. And uh, let me clue you, Satan will convince you of that very quickly. He will say, you're good, you know. You're so good that maybe you should take credit for what's going on here. Whatever the reasoning was, the scripture makes it very clear that this effort becomes a stumbling block for Israel because it becomes an object of worship to a people who had been accustomed to worshiping the images and the symbols of Baal and Ashtart in their many permutations. It's not a big change to shift to the worship of Yahweh symbolized by something they could see, something they could, well, probably wouldn't touch because they would view it as holy, but something that they could see that represented this invisible God that was always a trouble, or a, a, a trouble for Israel because he was unlike the gods of the surrounding nations. We're told that the Israelites from all around came and they bowed down to this ephod. Mm, you know. I don't think that this could be viewed as true worship of Yahweh. It was probably said to be an aid to worship. And you walk into the temples and the, and the cathedrals around the world, be they whatever denomination, and they will say that these images and these statues and these icons, whatever they are, are only there as aids to worship. You're not to worship them. You, they just remind you of the deeds of these heroes of the past or the greatness of these men and women of Scripture. But the line separating worship from veneration is a very, very thin line. And the problem is many people do not make the distinction because in many cases they are not able to make the distinction because throughout the world, historically at least, the vast bulk of the people have been illiterate. And to them, uh, something they can see gives them uh, an opportunity to fulfill their worship. We know that this wasn't just an aid to worship, but that they were actually worshiping it here because in verse 37 it said, All of Israel played the harlot with this golden ephod. Now, if you look through the Old Testament and you find the phrase, played the harlot, now, obviously, there were times when there was true harlotry in terms of sexual you know, wrongdoing, but often this phrase is a euphemism for apostasy, for committing acts of worship of false gods. Let me just give you an example from the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 4. Let me just read a couple of verses to you from there. Hosea 4, 11. Harlotry, wine, new wine, take away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. It, in that passage, as in several passages in Isaiah and elsewhere, it is not referring to sexual perversion or you know, sexual wrongdoing. It's talking about spiritual apostasy. It's talking about worshiping gods that are not the God of Israel. The popularity of this golden ephod becomes a spiritual snare to Gideon and his family. The people come to worship this item which he has made from Midianite gold. Although God had appeared to Gideon in angelic form, 
And God had spoken directly to Gideon. And God had used him in a mighty way to become the Shofat, to deliver Israel from the mighty army of the Midianites. Like Aaron and the case of the golden calf, Gideon compromised his faith. As we think back of Aaron, I mean, Moses and Aaron had walked side by side. They were brothers. And Aaron had seen the great work that God had done through this man, Moses. And, and, and Aaron had become his mouthpiece, as God had proclaimed it would happen. And, and yet when Moses is up the mountain for just 30, 40 days, why, why Aaron is, is, is intimidated by the people into making a golden calf, which we must, I think, recognize was thought to be a symbol of Yahweh. They weren't making a, quote, pagan god, per se. They were making a, an image that represented Yahweh. And yet, of course, to God, it was harlotry. It was spiritual harlotry. And Moses recognized this immediately as he came down off the mountain. What, what got into Aaron? Well, the same spirit got into Aaron as got into Gideon. Here. I mean, you, you can actually hear the voice of God. You can see the angel of the Lord. You can do a mighty work for God, and yet turn around and, and totally miss the mark, which helps us to understand how weak and how frail we are, how prone to evil we are, how much we need thee every hour, as the song proclaims, or it used to when we sang it. <clears throat> what was Gideon listening to? Not the voice of the Lord. He was not listening to the word of the Lord. He was listening, of course, to the voice of the evil one. And he made a cult object. He made a cult object. As I think about this, you, you, you think of, at least I'm, I'm brought to, to think of the, um, I don't know how many of you have seen the film The Mission, made many years ago. But uh, at the end of it, when, when these Jesuit missionaries are leading their flock out against the attacking uh, government forces, what, what is the priest carrying in his hand? What, what is he leading with? He's not leading with a cross. It, well, he's leading with the symbol of the wafer. What, what, do you, what do you call that thing? Monstrance or something like that. Yeah. He's carrying that out in front. And, you know, and, and, and that symbolizes the body of Christ. But you know, the problem is the focus is on it rather than upon Christ or upon God. And what was interesting is this ephod is located in Gideon's hometown, which, of course, keeps him in the limelight, right? People are coming to this town. And what do pilgrims do when they come to towns to worship? They spend money. <laughs> oh, why? Remember when, when Muhammad came along and began to preach his uh, new religion, uh, he was not welcome in Mecca when he began to preach his new religion because his new religion was exclusive. There was one God, his name is Allah, and all the other gods are non-gods. Well, Mecca was the headquarters for the worship of 365 gods. They were all located in the Kaaba, that big black cube there in, in Mecca. And the images were all through there, and people came from all over the Arab world to worship these gods. And, and Mecca was Mecca already. You know, it was already the holy city, and people spent money. And now if you come along with this one god and you negate all these gods, what's it going to do to the economy of Mecca? <laughs> so what was their concern? Whether they worshipped the right god or the wrong god? No, their concern was money. Do we make money or do we not make money? Ophrah probably prospered as Ophrah as it was a teeny little village. Had never prospered before. 
because of the presence of the golden ephod. One of the things we need to always remember about Satan is he's multifaceted. He is not focused in just one area. He will get you coming and going from the top, from the bottom, from any direction he can. In ways we don't even expect he will come. That's why the whole armor of God is a total body protection. You know, front and rear, top and bottom, left and right. Uh, shoes and, and helmet, shield and whole works. But what is interesting about the character of God is also demonstrated here. This revival that God had begun in Gideon is now aborted by Gideon himself. And yet the Midianites stay defeated. In fact, they never rise again throughout history. The Midianites are through. They are never mentioned again in Scripture except in reference back to them in the past or to some geographical feature related to them. They're never again mentioned as a viable people. Never. They apparently were wiped out. The manpower at least was, so what did the women end up doing? Well, they probably got carried off by other Bedouin tribes and, and just melted into the other tribes. And as I think about this, it reminds me of the fact that as you study through Scripture, you go over to the Near East today and you try to find some people who are called Hivites or Perizzites or Jebusites. You won't find any of those ites over there today. What you discover is that other than the Egyptians and maybe some of the, uh, of the Syrians, virtually all of the biblical people other than Israel have disappeared. Either they have completely died out as a nation or they have absorbed into other peoples. And in fact, if you go over to the Near Eastern world today, it seems like the whole world is Arabic, which of course it is not. They have simply imposed Arabic religion and Arabic speech and Arabic customs on top of numerous people, but as a result, they've all kind of disappeared. And, and you don't find them as identifiable entities over there today. But through it all, Israel has survived. Isn't that strange? You know, for, if, you, if you were in a a, you know, got your PhD in 13 different subjects and, and you're in a big university and you're looking at this, if you're really objective, you'd say, how is it that this little people from whom we get this book have survived and all the other peoples have been destroyed and wiped out? There's got to be something to this. It can't just be an accident of history. Because why should the accident of history be to a people whose book has survived. Other people were literate. Oh yeah, there's the book of the dead from ancient Egypt, and you can go and look at the, uh, the, the paintings on the walls and, and the hieroglyphs carved here and there, but there's no ongoing story from creation to 400 B.C. as there is in the Old Testament. Nowhere is there such a story. I mean, there, people are trying to tell us that, well, look at the Gilgamesh epic. There you have a flood story, and there you have a creation story. But if you read those two, they're nonsense. They, they try to say, of course, that's where Moses got his ideas. Well, that's not true. Moses, of course, received it directly from God, whereas the Gilgamesh epic is just the vague recollection of events that really happened as they had been distorted down through time. What we know of people like the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the other ites almost all comes to us from this book or from archaeology. And what has been so fascinating about archaeology is the archaeologists keep uncovering the fact that these people really existed, which, of course, 
their existence was challenged, especially in the late 19th, early 20th century as higher criticism swept through the major universities of the West. Well, with the destruction of Midian, Israel experienced 40 years of peace. 40 years with no oppressor. Why? They'd already aborted the revival. They'd off, gone off down some other rabbit trail. But God is faithful in the midst of it all. Well, let's read on here, the last verses in chapter 8. Then Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age, was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abizarites. Then it came about, as soon as Gideon was dead, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the sons of Israel again played harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bareth their god. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in accord with all the good he had done to Israel. A Gideon served as judge in Israel. He did the Shofat thing. And people came with their problems and their conundrums, and they asked him to solve their problems, and he had to pretend like he was Solomon. Not pretend like, but I mean, you know, with, with God's strength, he would uh, try to make wise decisions in each situation. What is interesting about this man was he came from being self-proclaimed from the least clan in his tribe and the least member in his family to the greatest man in Israel, the most honored man in Israel. And with that advance came wealth. And the wealth, of course, began with the, all the tribute that was given to him. Now, I don't think he used all that 40 pounds of gold to make an effort. You don't really need that much, I don't think, <laughs> to make an imitation effort out of gold. Uh, so we, I think he kept a little for himself, probably a lot. And with the wealth that he acquired, he became affluent. And with his affluency came multiple wives and concubines, which was a standard characteristic of wealth in those days and is still often in that part of the world amongst many of the peoples. It seems most likely that when he first became Shofat, he had at least by that time already two sons, maybe more, but at least two. Because if you remember back to verse 20, we're told that he had a son whose name was Jether. And that Jether was with him, and he had asked Jether to go and kill the two Midianite kings, but he said, no, he, he couldn't do that. And the scripture says, because he was an unproven warrior. Implication was he was too young. He was probably middle, early, maybe even early teenage. But he's called the firstborn. Now, if he's called the firstborn, that probably means there must have been other sons. Now, it could have been that the author was thinking down to the 70, <clears throat> but, but it's possible he already had at least two sons, and logical that he already had two sons, if one was already a teenager anyway, at that particular time. But the vast majority of his sons came later. Seventy sons, most of whom were born after he had defeated Midian and after he had acquired the many wives and at least one and probably more than one concubine. Now, there's an important statement here in the verse in the passage to make it clear to us that this is not to be viewed differently than that these were his sons. In verse 30, it says, Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants. 
the Hebrew means out of his loins, out of his loins. These were sons that came out of his loins. So what this means is these aren't stepsons. These aren't adopted sons. They're all sons that carried his DNA, as we would say today. Now, 70 sons was an unusual number. And this is indicated by the qualifying phrase, for he had many wives. Think of the averages, though. Think of the law of averages. For every son, generally speaking, there will be a daughter. Now, I, I realize, <laughs> years ago I was at a seminar down in, in South America, and <laughs> one of the teachers there, he had seven daughters. And somebody made a point of it, and he says, well, I have given up trying to get a son. <laughs> that, that does happen. But if he has multiple wives, I, I think the chances are very good. He had quite a few daughters along the way, too. You know, maybe not 70, but he, he probably had quite a few. So he was a busy man. Uh, this, was, this was very obvious. And, and he had quite a, quite a, a following. The, 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 obviously, as we'll see a little later on, they didn't all live in Ophrah. <laughs> Otherwise, the village would have been, whoa, you know, expanding very rapidly here just uh, with the Shofat doing his thing. Interestingly, as you read this here, you discover one of his sons is singled out. One that had been born by a concubine. Now, she is not named here, but Josephus tells us that her name was Druma, D-R-U-M-A-H, or transliterated in English that way. That concubine, we're told, lived in Shechem. Now, Shechem was a town larger than Ophrah that was located about 25 miles south of Ophrah, still within the territory of uh, Manasseh, but about 25 miles south. What this seems to indicate is that Gideon had numerous households. That he didn't just, it, it says he lived in Gideon, but he apparently did some circuit riding. And, and he had other households scattered around through the territory where he had wives and concubines and had children that were growing up. This, of course, would be wise if you're going to have this many wives and children. It would probably be better not to have them all concentrated in one place. <laughs> Because that could be a very, very uh, feuding uh, location. It would have been probably disastrous. But what we're told here is that he had this son by this concubine. And this son's name is, or his, the name that becomes attached to him is Abimelech. And why is he singled out? Why are, I mean, we do know the names of two, other, two others of Gideon's sons. We know one is, is uh, Jether, and we know, know another one is Jotham. And that seems to be the oldest and the youngest. We know the names of those two. We haven't come across Jotham yet, but we will in the ninth chapter. And, and this, this, this guy, uh, Abimelech. So out of 70, we know three, or 71, whatever, is the total number. I, I think it's very, well, we don't know for sure whether the concubines' children were actually counted in the Sevi or not because of the way the word 70 is used here, but probably he, he was included in that. He is singled out because as we move into the ninth chapter, we're going to discover he was a man of great aspiration and of great treachery. He was a true politician. As happened over and over again, as soon as the God-anointed Shofat died, Israel returned to complete apostasy. Now, of course, they'd already been prepared for this by uh, Gideon's uh, ephod, where they were worshiping Yahweh in an 
in an unhonoring way, in a non-biblical way. And so they were already off, you know, they had been brought from, from paganism to the worship of Yahweh, and then they were kind of sent partway back, and now when he dies, they go all the way back. I mean, they just drop the whole pretense, and they move right back into total worship of pagan deities. Even though Gideon had compromised his faith by creating this cult object, God still honored him by giving him peace throughout his 40 years. Scripture says that throughout the 40 years, he had peace in, back in verse 28. And the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Now, as I think about that, I realize, now, if I were God, I don't think I'd do that. I'd give him a bad time. <laughs> but we see something of the character of God here, of his far-seeing and of his great patience and mercy. This quick reversion to idolatry, I think, is, gives us a, a real good insight to truths that are important for us. I think it supports the idea or the belief that a healthy spiritual life can only be maintained by constant effort. It doesn't, you don't just plug in, become born again, suddenly you're a spiritual person and you're there, you know, just growing, growing, growing like a weed every day without any effort on your part. It doesn't happen that way. To coast along is to invite defeat, powerlessness. A victorious and abundant life only comes through diligent pursuit of the knowledge of God and active servanthood. There are those who say, I can be a good Christian and I'll go up and live in a cabin on top of a mountain someplace and I'll associate with the porcupines and the, you know, the skunks and so forth and I won't have to associate with people. And I will be a growing person in God. Well, a, a person can in a, in a moment of quiet. We all need our solitude, but to live a life like that uh, is not to have an active servanthood. You can't serve anybody in the name of the Lord if you live totally uh, separate from people. That's one of the problems that the monastic movement created in history. The monastic movement, when it was in its most solitary element, tended to, to stifle the church. Individuals might come to a more mystic understanding of God, but it stifles the actual reality of the church. And that's why eventually they created what are known as the Order of Friars, uh, brothers, who went out with their ideas and they served the people, the Franciscans and the Dominicans and, and the people of, of that nature actually went out and carried the ministry of the church in amongst the poor of, of life, of, of society at that particular time. When we become complacent, apostasy begins to set in. And we have what I like to think of as the development of spiritual hardening of the arteries. Let me read a passage to you that you're familiar with from the 24th chapter of Matthew. <laughs> Matthew chapter 24, the Lord is speaking to his disciples about the signs of his return. In verse 9, we read these words, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, 
most people's or many people's love will grow cold. Their love of the Lord will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. Well, does that rule out uh, once saved, always saved, or is this considered Old Testament? We mean this Matthew passage? This Matthew passage where he says, um, the ones who endure till the end, you know, rather than, okay, I just got saved, I'm, I'm going to heaven. This, this says, the ones who endure till the end will be saved. So, where are we with that? <laughs> I suddenly perceive a great minefield in front of me here. <laughs> yeah. I'll let you work through that one. <laughs> I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. That's right. I fully agree. <laughs> we'll know when we get there. Personally, I feel, you know, like I don't like the way it was put one time by one person. I like what he was implying, but I didn't like the way he put it. He kept talking about half-truths. Well, there's no such thing as a half-truth. It's either true or it's not. But I think both Wesleyan and Calvinism are correct as you understand them, and they can be totally intermeshed as we, as we view them properly from Scripture and don't try to become, you know, we have a tendency to, to, to go to extremes and want to be in one camp and color everything black and white. Whereas uh, scripture, don't, don't misunderstand this, but a lot of scripture is gray, not that it's neutral. An example of that, Don, is this morning Pastor Paul uses a passage that talks about not loving the world. And yet John 3.16 says that God loved the world. You know, I mean, yeah. You can pull over there, you can pull over there. You know, yeah. so. and, and that's where so so many of our uh, cults are created is they take some little thing and blow it all out of proportion to the totality of Scripture. You have to know that you have to study the whole counsel of the Word of God. And personally, I feel that enduring to the end is necessary because if one doesn't endure to the end, was one ever there in the first place? You know, can be, can be the question. That's in First John, I think. Those who went away from us were not with us in the right, first place. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we viewed a couple of tapes by Elizabeth Elliot the other night, and uh, she kept emphasizing the fact, and I believe this is true, that it's not how many times you stand with your hands up raised singing praises to the Lord that makes you a good Christian. What makes you a good Christian, Jesus said, you if you love me, you'll do what I say. So obedience is the true demonstration of a person's love for God, not ritual or form or, or any of these other things. It's obedience. Do we do what Christ said? If we don't do what Christ said, the rest of it's irrelevant. It's meaningless. Why bother? It's as Yahweh said, I get tired of all your festivals and new moons and all this stuff because they have no meaning. The heart is not there. And so we need to focus on the truth of obedience. Trust and obey. What, what can we do? We can't get away from that, can we? I'm a Johnsonian. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with the Father and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Yes. Walking in the light. Absolutely. Right. Obedience. Which is where Gideon, of course, went astray and where Israel goes completely astray here. And what's interesting is here, the passage tells us that they will chase after Baal Bareth, which is Baal of the Covenant. You see the kind of 
inched their way back into paganism by coloring it with covenant. Oh, the God of the covenant. Yahweh's the God of the covenant. Baal's the God of the covenant. So, you know, what's one or the other? The great victory. And, and it is, to me, it, this, the end of the eighth chapter of Judges is such a tragic verse. Nor, well, back to the 34th verse. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the household of Jerubbabel in accord with all the good that he had done for Israel. Totally thankless to God and to Gideon. And I think that's one of the primary examples of apostasy. Thanklessness. Thanklessness. They used the excuses of Gideon's death, the excuse of Gideon's death, to go after the gods of the Canaanites. Well, the ninth chapter is another story, and it's a weird one, believe me. And uh, we'll look at this story of Abimelech. Abimelech. My father is king, is the meaning of his name, which is interesting, given the fact there had been no king in Israel up to that moment. 